Hello, welcome to episode 154 of Her Pathological Highlights. My name's Tom Major and co-hosting with me, as per usual, it's Ben Marshall. And we've got an episode this week about some interesting symbiotic relationships. This was a Patreon episode for Will Jewell and Will was interested in symbioses between reptiles and amphibians and other animals, basically times where... Animals that you might not expect to team up, team up. Yeah, teamwork. We love to see it. We do like to see it. I think uh, it's kind of fundamentally appealing to human beings because we are suckers for teamwork. Like if you see somebody in trouble, you'll kind of like naturally try and help them. It's an instinct that we have as a social creature. Mm -hmm. It's not really necessarily something you'd associate often with reptiles and amphibians. You know, these kind of stony faced savages. Well, you know, cold-blooded is a term people use, and that's obviously associated with reptiles and a a lack of feeling, and that's potentially unfair because there are plenty of social reptiles that do do care. But um, I think the other thing is you're thinking about nature. I think there's a tendency to think of it as like a sort of brutal, all-or-nothing competition, survival of the fittest stuff, and that makes it seem very cutthroat. But survival isn't always best achieved through cutthroat means is it there there are definitely space for teamwork and commensalism and symbiosis and all these different aspects that don't necessarily jump to the front of your mind when you think of competition and sort of natural selection and nature in a broader sense Mm. to be honest i extend that kind of like cutthroat survival of the fittest thing to human society so i'm kind of on the opposite end i think it is you know savage dog eat dog world out there no of course i don't (laughs) but yeah no you're right like it isn't always. There is a lot of collaboration. And, you know, it's not exactly surprising that sometimes it can be beneficial to collaborate. And you mentioned there are two kinds of symbiosis, commensalism, where like one animal benefits, the other one doesn't. And then you've got mutualism, where both animals involved in teaming up win. And then you've got parasitism, which everyone's familiar with. You know, parasites just take, take, take. They don't give anything back. Right. But, but um, I don't think the parasites necessarily need to cause like harm in the sort of broader sense, right? They can just sort of no, because that would be a commensalism. That if would be commensalism, but it, they just happen to be there gaining something, but not actively harming the what who, who they're taking it from. Yeah, and obviously it's like a difficult thing to unpick because, and we'll talk about this in the episode, like sometimes, particularly if relationships are newly discovered or not well understood, you don't really understand the full sort of picture. So it might mm. appear that something's a parasite. It's kind of like the oxpeckers we were talking about. Yes. Um, there's like a shift like in the way. Yeah, it looks like commensalism, and then it looks like mutualism, and then it looks like parasitism, and then it looks yeah. like, you know, it depends what you see the bird doing. If you see it pecking a hole in the ox and drinking its blood, you're like, geez, that's a parasite. But then <laughs> you hear that they warn rhinos about humans approaching, you think, ah, oh, that ox peck is a legend, mate. Like, yeah. actually helping out. So, yeah, complicated world, isn't it? So, let's introduce the paper. It's by Delima Barros, Lopez Lozano, and Lima, 2016. The frog Lithodites lineatus uses chemical recognition to live in colonies of leaf cutting ants of the genus Atta, published in Behavioral Ecology and Sociobiology. This is a good one, this one. I like this. I it's like f- this paper a lot. I like tidy, isn't it? the idea of stinky frogs making their lives among the ants. <laughs> in, in a beautiful, peaceful coexistence. Yeah. So Will requested this episode. And in the email from Will, he mentioned that 
there was an example, a famous example of an invertebrate and a frog demonstrating a mutualism. And so this is the case of microhylid frogs, so narrow-mouthed frogs, and these large spiders like tarantulas. They share holes, and they do this in a few different places in the world that are actually quite far away from each other. So there's some in India that do it. There's some just across the water in Sri Lanka that do it. And then all the way over in Peru, frogs of the same family team up with tarantulas, and they both share hole. They share a nice hole. And um, it's a bit of a mystery... Well, it was a bit of a mystery for a long time, like why? But then um, as it turns out, the thought now is that spiders benefit from the frogs because the frogs actually eat ants and the spider's eggs are likely to be eaten by ants. And the spiders are like so big that they can't really defend against ants. They don't really have the dexterity to like smash ants. So, Which is kind frog... of surprising when you think about it, isn't it? Spider versus ant, you would have think that's, that's an easy matchup. Bigger spider, even easier matchup. But... Mm, I think because humans versus ants, it's so easy for us to like slay them in their thousands. It's easy to think that a spider could do the same. But then you think all of those legs, they've got to try and squash ants with. It's going to be pretty chaotic. <laughs> and if you imagine there's like hundreds of ants swarming in. <laughs> yeah, it's an odd problem for a spider is, is all. Yeah, it is an odd problem for a spider. And they think the spiders benefit through the frogs, you know, eat the ants. And then the frogs benefit because the frogs are quite small and the spiders are quite big. And frogs get eaten by loads and loads of different things. You know, snakes will eat them, lizards will eat them. Other invertebrates will even come and eat these frogs. But if the frog is in the hole of the spider, a large predator, it's going to be safe from all the other animals trying to attack it. And um, they think that it's because of a chemical this frog exudes on its skin because young spiders that have not got experience of being friends with these frogs try and eat them, they grab them, but then they release them afterwards. So they think that this mutualism is born out of the fact that the mm. frogs actually don't taste good to the spiders. So they might actually just kind of be begrudgingly tolerating them. I doubt that they're like <laughs> conscious of the fact that they're actually defending their nests, but they probably do serve this purpose. But we've got a different example here, still frog related and actually kind of broadly similar, really. Very similar. Yeah, but we're talking about frog ants in the genus Atta. And um, this is a study which is taking place in South America. And ants in the genus Atta, they're actually leaf cutter ants. And like many ants, they use chemical signals to communicate. And if they find another ant of a different species near the colony and it doesn't have the ability to communicate with the same chemicals, they butcher it immediately. They kill it straight out. Yeah. So it's symbi potential symbiosis we're getting with a frog on top of already some symbiosis because these guys apparently cultivate fungus within their nests, which is kind of incredible. Yeah, so are they going out, they're cutting the leaves and then they're bringing them back and then they're putting them in a pile and then the fungus feeds on the de decaying leaves. Is that how it works? That's what I'm sort of assuming. Yeah. But it what's important about it, because they have a source of food, which they maintain, they only sort of defend their nest as opposed to some other ants that no matter where you meet them, they're going to have a go. Because they're out there, you know, they're more predatory in that sense that they're going out and retrieving prey items and bringing them back. These guys are cultivating their own food, so they're not requiring sort of external prey. So we do have a different setup. They're sort of potentially defensive behavior is more centered around their nest as opposed to foraging. Yeah, Which makes they're not going out and killing big prey like some ants. You see right. those videos of, you know, like a thousand ants taking on an earthworm, just completely overwhelming. Yeah, it. that would only happen if the earthworm was causing a ruckus in the nest. 
it seems. Yeah, I just love the idea that these ants are kind of like agricultural. <laughs> you know, <the> <laughs> yeah, it is. Agriculture, essentially. It? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much. But yeah. yeah, so this species of frog is widely distributed in the Amazon and Orinoco river basins of northern South America. And they are known to be associated with leaf-cutting ants. So the scientific name is Lithodites lineatus, which kind of speaks to the fact that they've got stripes on their backs. And they are quite pretty. They're sort of dark with a golden-coloured stripe. But one of their common names is actually the painted ant nest frog. And yeah, the males call from ant nests and they actually represent the only species of frog known to breed in the nests of ants. And when they breed, they make foam nests. So the female exudes this like frothy liquid when she lays the eggs. And then I mean, assuming both frogs, it's usually both frogs sort of waggle their legs like mad, froth it up. And then the tadpoles subsequently live in this nice moist froth and they can sort of grow there and live happy, calm lives inside the ant's nest. And this frog is actually toxic. It secretes compounds that taste bad to predators. And actually, fascinatingly, there are two other very closely related, well, not even that closely related, but two other frogs which share this bold coloration of like gold stripes on a black background. And they're also toxic. So there's like three species of frogs that are sort of distantly related, living in the same area and using a similar strategy of being toxic. And they Mm -hmm. think that's malarian mimicry where they're kind of all doing the same thing. And the fact that there's three species of frogs doing the same thing means that there's potentially three times, you know, maybe three times the amount of animals doing the same thing. So predators are likely to encounter that coloration and begin to associate they're it gonna with learn toxicity. Quickly. Yeah. yeah. And everywhere yeah. they go, it should be the same locally, which is smart. It's a good strategy. It's a good evolutionary strategy. So, um, yeah, the point of this paper, they wanted to see if the painted ant nest frogs were immune to attack from the ants. And the way they did that was they put some frogs inside little plastic boxes that ants could enter, but frogs couldn't exit. And they put them at the entrance to the nests. And they did this with three different groups of frogs. We had the painted ant nest frog. We had the two similar looking species that share its coloration and toxicity. And also another one, just a random tropical bullfrog, because it's like (laughs) sort of control. Yes, to control the the completely unrelated, well, just a random frog frog guy. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and then they put these boxes in front of ants' nests. And crucially, the observers, people watching, didn't know which frogs were which. They didn't understand the experiment. They kind of got naive observers, which is a good thing that a lot of people do in these kinds of experiments to not sort of bias the results. And they just counted how many ants attacked the different frogs. And it was very, very clear-cut case, really, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was super clear-cut. The, uh, our, uh painted uh ant nest frog ant nest frog was barely ever even attacked like at all it, no. <laughs> it was just peacefully there with the ants yeah. no problem it was stark contrast right they got Not savaged so immediately yeah. yeah it was like an average of 20 ants clamping onto them and when and they attack they sort of bite and clamp they stay there really really quick by comparison as well I mean, obviously, you don't actually have a time for the non-attack ones because it's just when the trial timed out at like 10 minutes. Um, but the others were was like 0.36 of a minute. So what's that, like 20 seconds, 25 seconds, something <laughs> like that? Yeah. Not long. That's not long. Yeah, so yeah, you spend Identify and defend. Yeah, ants are brutal though. Like, I've been attacked by ants just from standing near their nest and they don't hang about. Like, no, you know they they're don't. there. No, well, I mean, that nest is their life. Yeah. And imagine yeah, no, a frog was... rolling into an ant nest, how many ants it could eat in a given space of time. Like, you want to get these potential predators away from your nest ASAP. And yeah, yeah extreme prejudice. 
I'm thinking of seeing like Kalula eating termites, which is, I guess, quite similar. And right. like, the rapid fire with which frogs can eat ants. Like you say, it is insane. It's like machine gun speed. Next thing you know, so, yeah, half the colony's gone. Exactly. And so obviously this is a very clear picture. The painted ant nest frogs are not being attacked while the other even similar looking species are, which suggests, you know, okay, well, the ants aren't identifying them by sight because these other frogs that look virtually the same are not being attacked. Right. You know, they might have characters the ants can recognize, but they thought, okay, well, let's take this study one step further. Let's actually see if it's something to do with some skin secretions. So then what they did, they uh, actually took some of the sort of skin gland secretions from the painted ant nest frogs and they slathered it all over some individuals of they Brunella bathed them major in they, they bathed, bathed them, them in it, it. yeah yeah <laughs> they soak up the skin secretions because they're porous creatures these they frogs. are they are so they suck up this secretion like a sponge and they used Renella major which is major a toad and it is closely related to cane toad but mm-hmm. it doesn't have a common name, frustratingly, which makes it harder to talk about. If we could sort that out, please, herpetologists, that'd be great. I mean, surely you it should just be Google away, major mate. Toad. I struggled. Well, no, because I think it's not like Major's Toad, although that would be... No, no, as in the description is in just rule. Big Toad. Big Toad. Yeah, it yeah. means just Big Toad. Major Toad. Not... Yeah. That's all, it's, <laughs> that's that's all you need. <laughs> a toad is major. Like, yeah. Oh, you mean Chanko Granulated Toad? Is that what they call it? I looked on a few different websites and I couldn't find a common name. Well, this so, is yeah. iNaturalist saying this. So, oh, that's a good source. It tends to... We'll allow it. T- let that, and that's pulling its source from Amphibia Web. Well, I went to Amphibia Web and they didn't have anything there. I even stooped to looking on Wikipedia and I couldn't find one there. Yes, that's true. Anyway, it doesn't anyway. have the common name on... No. So, it's well, whatever. Grant... Oh, they're quite cute. Are they? What do they actually look like? I didn't Google one. They look like... Um, well, I did, but I didn't look at the pictures. You take a cane toad, but sort of slim it down and sort of make it look a bit more frog-like and less toad-like. Mm. So it's a less toady cane toad. Okay. By no means a lesser toad. No, they still look like a toad. Yeah, and so what they did with these Ranella Major, they uh, had some that were coated with the magic goo, the skin secretion, and others that weren't. And they compared the attack rates of ants with the same experiment. They put them in a little box near the ant's nest. And I mean, it was incredibly obvious. It was all or nothing. So every single toad that wasn't coated with the skin secretions of the painted ant nest frog was attacked. And every single one that was coated with it was not attacked. And yeah, we're talking faster attack rates and lots of ants actually attacking and grippering on. Yeah. Was it even faster though? I swear it was like just none of the ones that were coated were. Attacked. Oh, well, yeah. No, this is what it's just a rapid amount of time is all I'm getting at. It's, yeah, you know, yeah, we're talking, yeah. we're talking less than a minute as opposed to. Yeah. No, the ones that were soaked in the skin secretion were completely fine. They weren't touched. <laughs> they did, however, describe one. Which doesn't pop up in the methods and just sort of is a little bit of an aside. I think in the discussion where they talk about one that was like half soaked and specifically the ants only attached themselves to the area that was not covered in the skin secretions. That's wild. Yeah. So the full body of one our major individual was impregnated with the skin extractions and its hind legs were coated with ultra pure water. The ants walked over the region with the skin extracts and did not bite. But once reaching the legs, they bit on first contact. That's so funny. 
it seems like it's super localized too. It's very, very chemically dependent as opposed to, oh, this general frog area smells adequately safe. We'll leave it alone. Yeah. But it's just so funny to think that like ants can't distinguish that those legs are related. To that <laughs> yeah. So it's walking <laughs> along. Everything's fine. This is a Fred. Wait a second. <laughs> Immediate yeah, attack. Mean, I'm not going to criticize the intellectual capabilities of invertebrates again. So. They have incredibly complex social creatures. So this suggests, obviously, that there's chemical compounds in the skin which protect the frogs from ant attack by the soldiers of these um, leafcutter ants, which are actually massive and quite scary. Yes. Just a side note on that is you do get like bigger soldier ants that are the ones responsible for defending the nest against vertebrates, i.e. our frogs. But when it comes to other ants attacking the nest, smaller ants are recruited, apparently. So you're talking about like complex social interaction within ants. You do have this recognition of what they're defending against and therefore picking the appropriate individuals to go out and go out and stop them, which is interesting. Yeah, such an effective hive mind. Like, oh, ant number one bumps into terrestrial vertebrate predator. It squeezes yeah. out a little pheromone and then all the other ones are like, I've got a job to do. And they just charge But in. the correct so ones, good. not just any yeah, old the ones, correct the ones, correct not the beastly ones. ones yeah. The ones that are, well, have the appropriate equipment to deal with it. Oh, well, it is the big ones, isn't it, if it's a vertebrate? Mm-hmm. And so then they were talking about, you know, why it might be that the frogs have evolved to have this strategy of not being attacked by ants. And it's the classic thing, like, ant hills have a stable microclimate, so it's nice and humid in there. It's generally warm or at least a stable temperature. And um, these are important features of a microhabitat if you're a frog who has tadpoles to think about because you don't want them desiccating drying out you want them to stay nice and damp in their little foam nest and obviously an ant's hill an ant's nest could be really good for that and so right now they think that it's a commensalism where the frogs are benefiting from the ants but the ants aren't benefiting from the frogs but there's also not a major cost to the ants but they do say that further study might actually show that the frogs are eating other sort of invertebrates and things like that, which the ants might consider predators. It might even be that there's like another, because there are a lot of invertebrates which have like chemical ways of getting into ants' nests and being hidden. So it might be that there's another one in there and the frogs eat those. It could be incredibly complicated and it could be a mutualism, but we just don't know yet. We don't know enough about the interactions between these species. I do like the idea of another species of invertebrate or something sneaking into these ant hills using some sort of chemical secretion. It's simply not working on the frog because the frog isn't determining what's prey or not based on chemical cues. It's all visual. So you've got this sneaky invertebrate coming in thinking it's going to eat some ants, ant eggs. And the uh, next thing it, it knows, it comes across this cheeky little frog sitting in there. It's like, hmm. No, your tricks don't work on me. <laughs> I, yeah. I know that you can be eaten. You're not an ant. Hey, you're not an ant. Yeah, love it. Very cool. Because there must be something to eat in there for the tadpoles to develop. Like, surely tadpoles are going to eat after they've always. developed, right? Well, after they're froglets, yeah, but they don't always eat during the development stage. It depends on the species. I'm assuming right? these are like direct developing just straight from egg to froglet, right? If they're in foaminess, because there would be little point being a tadpole in a foamy no, nest, lo- because you I wouldn't need know. the locomotion, right? No, yeah, because we had this a few weeks ago, didn't we? Some tadpoles actually serve to maintain the foam nest by swimming around in it. Oh, so. so there is a point. There is a point. Yeah, I don't know. They may have tadpoles. I don't know. 
Mm. I assume they have tadpole face. Yeah. Whether or not the tadpole's eaten there, I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. It's a complicated picture of them. It but, is, um, and it's yeah. also presupposing, like, if you were to see a tadpole, and it's like, okay, this tadpole has mouth parts implying it would eat. It's like, well, it doesn't really sell it because that could just be a vestigial mouth, essentially. They don't actually yeah. need it. And, yeah. But yeah, so that is the life of the painted ant nest frog and its interaction with leafcutter ants of the genus Atta, scientific name of the frog Lithodites linnaeus. Oh, lineatus, not Linnaeus. Get out of here, Linnaeus. No one asked you. So <laughs> let's move on, shall we, from one small frog to another. So this is a paper by Griesbaum, Jongsma, Penner, Kuame, Dumbia, Gonwoal, Gloss, Blackburn, Hillers, and Rodel, 2023, the smallest of its kind, description of a new cryptic Amnirana species from West African rainforests, published in Zootaxa. So Frederick Griesbaum is actually, Griesbaum, I hope I'm not butchering your name, Frederick, is actually a listener of the podcast and he sent us this paper. And that is exactly the kind of shameless self-promotion we like. <laughs> so recovery. it. Yeah. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to all of you herpetologists. If you save us the job of looking for a paper, we might actually cover it. And uh, yeah, they've described a brand new species of frog. So we're in Africa and Amnirana is this genus of like forest and savanna dwelling frogs. And I think it was in 2018, there was a paper about one of the frogs in this genus, the white-lipped frog. Amnirana albolabris, showing its scientific epithet there with uh, a very cool pit viper and probably a load of other species as well. Because oh, it's I'm sure. That's, that's got to be, yeah. Got to be. Yeah. The combination of white and lip. Yeah. Lots of animals seem to have white lips. But yeah, this species was long assumed to have a massive range from like eastern central to western African rainforests. However, so, uh, this 2018 molecular phylogenetic analysis looked at the genes of that species and basically revealed that that taxon likely represents several undescribed species as well as the original taxon. And the Western ones from like Ghana, Liberia, Sierra Leone were identified as a candidate species. And that's what these authors have set out to describe using some museum specimens and such. Seem to be the more coastal ones looking at the map. You've got a sort of more inland group that are sort of Northern Ivory Coast Northern Guinea, well, not Northern Guinea, that's because it wraps around, uh, yeah. Eastern Guinea, and then you've got Sierra Leone and Liberia further to the south, further to the coast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they kind of took it to the next level in this, they compared it to another species, Fenensis, and they did some niche modelling, which is pretty cool, which you don't normally see in a species description, and yeah, essentially what you're saying, this species that we're talking about is like the kind of wetter, more foresty species, and then right. Fenensis is more tolerant of sort of like savanna, dry forest, so that gives it a little bit of sway to sort of like spread into drier areas. I feel like a lot of the time you don't get the uh, niche modelling stuff in species description papers is because people don't have enough location data <laughs> to totally begin man. with because you're newly describing a species the chances are you don't actually have that much data and if you're trying to like retroactively use occurrence data that was collected beforehand and you're like okay the species split is probably here and here how do you validate that as opposed to maybe it's an overlap so it's, it can be quite difficult 
um, especially if yeah. it's previously a species that's assumed to have a wide distribution. They did mention that in here because like a lot of the old specimens, if they don't have like a specific locality and they're just named right. like the original umbrella species, then it's like, well, we can't ever tell which one that is without... Or localities just a country or capital yeah. city or something like that that yeah. causes problems. Or you often get a locality labelled as like the port that exported it as well, I think, which is yep. obviously even, even more confusing. But yeah, as I say, these ones from Ghana, Liberia, Sierra Leone and other places locally uh west africa were described as a new species in this paper and they've given it a lovely name they've called it amnirana parva which uh parva means small in latin so um yeah it's, it's, it's the smallest one in the genus it is it's tiny how big is it 40 to 50 millimeters svl quite small oh uh, the Frogs. females the females can get up to 75 yeah the females are a lot bigger than the males they had a picture of a male and a female together in the paper in and fact the females are whopping compared so to much males. bigger that there's not actually overlap between the two so the max male svl is 50 the minimum female svl is 53 54 so no overlap which is useful for identification purposes yeah, super handy if you're trying to work out which sex you've got. Yeah. And yeah, they like primary humid evergreen rainforest or slightly degraded rainforest in the lowlands. And um, yeah, it's been kind of recorded in areas which dominated by bamboo. They also found some in man-made ponds of a fish farm. And in the fish farm, they actually found eggs. So there was clutches comprised of more than a thousand eggs floating around in the water. They were either just floating or they attached them to sticks. And interestingly, the fish which were cichlids that they were growing in the fish farm they didn't eat the eggs and they also <laughs> caught some tadpoles and then offered them to a clarius catfish which is a type of catfish i assume and um the catfish would like suck in the tadpoles and then after a second they'd spit them out so oh, they didn't like not palatable they taste not palatable so that's and the fact that cichlids aren't eating them i mean some cichlids are vegetarian um, vegetarian, herbivorous. herbivorous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> They're vegetarian by choice. It's a moral thing, you know. Like they understand climate change. They know beef's not good for the earth. And so, um, yeah, what they found was that yeah they were potentially a little bit, a little bit toxic, maybe or at least foul tasting. But yeah, you know, in their species sort of uh, niche model that they created, they created a map and it shows like a massive area of good habitat. But the reality is the range is probably a little bit smaller, probably a lot smaller and um, probably restricted to the remaining patches of primary forest in the Upper Guinea forest zone. But yeah, nice species. Let's talk about what it looks like. It looks quite classically froggy, quite slender. Oh, it's super classically froggy. It's so smooth. I like how smooth it is. It's also got like mottled legs, but a sort of pale brown back. And then the flanks are like half green, half white. Yes, you've got this green transition top. from a green top fading down to a, a pale belly. Yeah. And white and lips big again. big eye. And white lips. Yeah, very white lips. Yeah, and then counter shading. Are there any photos of the belly? I think the belly's got to be white, right? It gives that impression. Yeah, the yes. belly is whitey coloured. Yes. Yeah. Pale. And the tadpoles are quite pale as well. Tadpoles are sort of palely yellowy. And the habitat they live in just looks like nice forest streams, some of which are in a protected area. They do talk about whether or not it should be declared as endangered. But where? IUCN threat status. Yes. Thank Basically, you. because of 
lack of data, not super sure. But the way distribution is sort of thinking least concern, maybe? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also because they're tolerant of the sort of forest degradation stuff. So they're not going to be one of these super, super niche, can only breed in a certain type of bromeliad. And the bromeliad only appears on a certain type of tree. And the tree is super commercially important. So it gets chopped down all the time so the frogs have nowhere to live. So hopefully they're all right. And the fish farm thing is good. That kind of indicates some sort of tolerance of man-made structures because the, the pictures of the fish farm they have in this paper are just large concrete buckets buckets that's not the right word they're just like big concrete enclosures aren't they they're yeah just, just artificial big square ponds. concrete holes in the ground yeah and they like breeding in them so yeah you're right they're probably pretty tolerant i mean if you've got toxic tadpoles you're laughing really aren't you yeah it seems pretty good as long as they can get out of the fish farms nicely Hmm. Should be okay. They look, quite ar- they look quite arboreal. They do look quite arboreal. I hope they can climb concrete well. Yes, it will serve them in this day and age. Okay, have you got any other business for this week, Ben? I don't. No, no, uh, no. Any other business from? Yeah. No, I also have no other business. So, um, yeah, I think that's basically it for this episode. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can highlights at gmail dot com. Remember, we got the Redbubble store for T-shirts, uh, redbubble.com slash herphighlights. If you want to become a Patreon, hugely appreciated. Absolute bunch of legends. Patreon.com slash herphighlights. Thank you to Will for yeah, suggesting episode, such huh? a fun episode. That mm-hmm. was really good. And yeah, uh, I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.